Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, April 9th. Before I get into today's news as well as the research I did for today's podcast topic, get to let all of you listeners know that these daily podcasts are made possible by our friends at Diadem Sports. And if you've heard it once on this Mini Break podcast, you've heard it repeatedly. We know that Diadem is helping tennis players across the globe elevate their games by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet that beautiful aqua blue elevate uh, 98 that just gorgeous all black nova 100 crafted with your game style in mind whether your game uh, commands power and explosiveness precision and control they've got the rackets that will help you take your game to the next level they've also got five different tr- sets of strings you know my thoughts on the impulse they've also got the evolution the flash the elite xt and of course given that it's springtime we could all use a little sunshine and boy do they have something to harness it for you there's strings, the solstice power, uh, guaranteed again to have a string type for your game, regardless of your playing style. They've also got their premier tennis balls, their drawstring bags, their hooded sweaters, their t-shirts. It's your one-stop shop for all of your tennis gear needs. And if you go onto their website, diadimsports.com right now, you use our promo code CR50, you'll get 50% off your order. And I say this every day, but I sincerely mean it. We are so grateful for the support Diadim gives us on each and every one of these podcast, the least we can do for any of your tennis needs during this self-quarantine time is to ask you, go to diademsports.com, save a little money by plugging in that promo code CR50. They are so supportive of us. The least we ask is that you guys be supportive of them as well. So again, it's diademsports.com, promo code CR50. With that being said, let's run through the day's news because I have an exciting research topic that I did today for all of you to talk uh, on this uh, to talk about on today's podcast. It's you know we're we're up to a bunch of different long form projects right now at Crack Rackets. A lot of you have seen hopefully uh, what we're up to on our YouTube channel, CR Classics, our look at some of the best matches in tennis history. Of course, we have also launched Overserved, our look at all of the comedy that happens week in week out on the tour. Uh, but you know all about that. You're going and already subscribing to our YouTube channel and making super producer Daniel Westoff's day. Uh, But of course, we're up to some other things as well, and that means doing research. And it's amazing the things you find while you're researching tennis. It is really because there are so many events, so many spectacular seasons, spectacular performance. You can get caught up in so many things. And I got into one of those deep dives today where I was like, well, what did this season look like from this player? And oh, well, what did this season look like? And it sort of spiraled.
spiraled from there. Uh, so, you know, I will talk about that more when we get into that topic. Want to run through the day's news first. Uh, let's start with the juicy stuff. There was a fascinating interview in Ubi Tennis this uh, today talking about, uh, you know, what the ATP schedule is going to look like moving forward. And it was the ATP president who came out with the interview. And one of the things he says is the tour is prioritizing slams. And I don't think there's any shock in that. But they also confirmed that they want to squeeze two Masters 1000s events on clay after the U.S. Open, if that's possible. Uh, he also says the O2 is only available in its schedule week in London to host ATP finals. Therefore, you couldn't move that event even if you want to extend the ending of this 2020 season. And of course, that's a big assumption, assuming we are going to even see tennis during this year. But hopefully we are. And if we do, uh, what this interview told me, and again, I've, I've retweeted the link who I got from Christopher Clary of the New York Times on Twitter, uh, but it, it's obviously a fascinating, it'll be a fascinating home stretch just to see how all these tournaments try to get scheduled, see them all jockey for individual weeks to try and ensure that their event gets played. It's going to be a cluster, folks, and I think that's the sort of thing we'll all, again, worrying about the mismanagement of the ATP, of all of the structural flaws. I feel like that will be a blessing if we are able to get out of this uh, self-quarantine, this pandemic, and start focusing on those things again. Uh, but certainly, it's something to monitor as we move forward. And again, you guys can go find that article at ubitennis.net. That's ubitennis.net. Uh, it's called ATP Chairman Guadenzi Needs Stop Fight, Infighting, Everything Forget given French Open. That's, of course, a rough title, but I, I think it's a fascinating article. You should all go read that for more. Also today from John Wertheim, who tweeted out a communication between the WTA and the rest of the players, uh, the WTA players, the WTA and trying to make aware for all of these players uh, that many nation governments are implementing programs to provide economic support to affected businesses and individuals by COVID-19. They're sending a letter to make sure that players are aware of certain resources that may be available to them in connection with these programs, and they provide a list of country-specific resources in the email, but they also are sure to point out, please be aware that this letter does not constitute legal or financial advice on behalf of the WTA and is not intended to be exhaustive. Their primary purpose is to make sure you, meaning the player, are aware that these provisions exist and to encourage you to consult with your legal and financial advisors regarding the programs described below and others that may be available to you. Now, look, it's good, of course, that they're trying to lead the players in the right direction regarding resources, regarding all of these things to help all of these players who are struggling financially, of course, as so many people are, get through this time. But I mean, this is like a, a an outline. It's like a table of contents of, hey, we, we can't do anything for you right now. And again, I'm not trying to be critical because we just spoke with Christian, and it's quite clear that the WTA Player Council are exploring as many avenues as possible to help support their players but I think this letter speaks to the state of where things are, and obviously I went through this yesterday. We've gone through this so often, so we don't have to rehash all of those arguments again. But you know, players don't bargain collectively. Tournaments don't bargain collectively. The body, the entire game of tennis is all individual bodies, so many different competing interests. And I do think they've been exposed now, perhaps more than ever, given that we want to come together to try and help as many people as possible, people, tournaments, entities affected by this in the game of tennis. And 
it's become harder and harder to do that. So, you know, this letter is sort of emblematic of that problem. Uh, but still, good for the WTA to try and get some information at all to their players to help them through this time. Another quick one, Madison Keys auctioning off three personalized 30-second uh, selfies for the Kindness Wins Foundation auction, 100% of the proceeds going to No Kid Hungry. So if you want a special message from her, hurry, that offer ends, I believe. Uh, it actually might have already ended if it hasn't, but still, what you know, that's the sort of thing that's so applaud- we applaud here always at Crack Rackets. We say, hey, great shot, Westoff, give me an applause sound effect, please. Because, you know, we, we applaud anyone trying to make an effort to help others during this time. And Madison Keys using her platform for the maximum amount of good. So shout out to you, Madison Keys. Also want to give a shout out to the ITA who announced today that they have decided to move forward with the All-American Awards. And you go back to the college season. Chris, Matt, and I talked about this on a mini break last week. No, we hadn't started conference play, but we had gotten through the majority of the indoor portion of the season. We had gotten through almost everything but conference play, conference tournaments, and the NCAAs. There were still a few supplemental matches here and there, but you know these players deserve competitive playing awards. They deserve to be honored and cele- have their hard work and accomplishments celebrated. And even though there will be no further rankings released this season for obvious reasons, it's great to see the ITA doing that if they need recommendations. Corey, Cody... Uh, you know, Dave, all of you guys out there, who am I forget? Both Dave and uh, Bruce, you know, you know where to call. I watched every moment of this 2020 season. I have takes, and needless to say, when those awards come out, in fact, probably even before then, we will do our preliminary All-Americans, our Players of the Year, maybe even do our ideal lineup if we could draft across the college world uh, for you listeners. So be on the lookout for that for a mini break in the near future. Now, That being said, let's get into today's monologue, and I know you're thinking eight minutes in, nine minutes in, and now we get the monologue? Well, yeah, welcome to the mini break. You're well-versed in that already, but... Today's deep dive started, as so many of them do, with a stat from at only Roger Can Fly, one of the best uh, Twitter follows for stats, wins, loss, records, notable accomplishments out there in the tennis Twitter universe. The first one he tweeted, uh, the most finals appearances for a player born after 1995. Of course, that's what got me going is because I saw Alex Virov on top of the list with 18 finals, Medvedev 13, Tsitsipas 11. Those are the only guys with uh, 10 or more now. I'm not going to get too deep into that stat because that's not the topic. He then sent out all the players with the most collective wins over the big three. Murray has 29, then there's a gap. Delpo, 17. Songa, 16. 14. Hewitt, team 14. And so that got me thinking, you know, if you try and make it wins over the big four, if you expand that category out, what does that look like? And, you know, Delpo gets up to 20, but he still has a losing record against all four guys. Wawrinka has 20 wins now, but he has a losing record against all four guys. Same thing with Burdich and Songa, who are at 19 and 18 wins respectively. Davidenko, 14. Roddick, 14. Nelbandian, 13. All of these players losing records against all four guys. And so, you know, I started thinking, is it a big three? Is it a big four? Of course, that's where you start to get down the rabbit hole. And you know, we're not going to relitigate that today. Don't worry. But I started looking at, you know, the big, because I wanted to go look at uh, naturally the career stats of Federer, of Nadal, of Djokovic, and the best five year stretches they put together. And I was also looking, and I tweeted this out the best five year stretch of Pete Sampras's career because I was, you know, looking at 90s tennis for something else we were doing. I just wanted to compare best five year stretches because in tennis, you know, longevity is key. 
it's really is a 52 week a year sport. Yeah, they have an off season in December and a couple of weeks off here and there throughout the year, but it's the only season that or sport that really calendar wise does run January through November. You have different portions of the year, different surfaces, all of these different things, different weathers, different conditions. Uh, and so, you know, we we've done things like best individual season. Certainly we did it for our best of the decade podcast, but I want to know who had the longest uh, stretch of sustained excellence. Who put together a five-year run on the ATP tour in history where you're just like, this guy was the best, and I wanted to go five years because so frequently you, when talking about the big three, it's their longevity. It's the fact that from 03 to now, you know, one of the big four, but the big three in particular, uh, have been ranked in the top two at just all times. And, you know, that's crazy that one of them has been number one since Federer ascended to the number one ranking. That's just ridiculous. And so I wanted to start to put together the best five-year runs in ATP Tour history. And the numbers were just staggering. And, you know, again, the reason I did this because big three, big four, what is it really? Who's the most accomplished? As Paul Anacone mentioned, it's not the best of all time. It's the most accomplished. That's the nuanced term. And if you haven't heard my conversation with Paul Anacone, go check that out on the Cracked Interviews podcast today. Um, but again, why five years? Well, given that tennis is, as I just stated, an all-year-long sport, to not get injured for over a five-year stretch, not have a significant injury stretch where you're out of tournaments or you're just not playing the same level, you're playing sparingly, only the big events, to do that over five years, that's what separates the absolute best players from everyone else. It's, it's not easy, but certainly you can have a good season or a good month or even just a really good event. Uh, but it's it's damn near impossible to have that sort of consistency five years in a row, and that's why guys like Djokovic, Federer, Nadal are just a cut above everyone else. And Pete Sampras does belong in that category, by the way. His five-year stretch from 1993 to 1997 was exceptional. It set the the standard for what it means to be excellent in the open era, and there's a reason why before the big three, he was... Still arguably, people would make the case for Laver, but that's before my time. But in the open era, I think definitively the best men's singles player of all time. And I want to run you guys through the top four, uh, in my opinion, the top four five-year stretches. Because again, these numbers are staggering, and I also think they will help uh, give you some context for the next time you get into the greatest of all time or most accomplished of all time debate. uh, You'll have some stats to back you up. So let's start with the top four. And number four, again, I, I looked at four guys in particular because I thought they were the four best. And if you think there's another player in the open era, let's not talk about the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, Poncho, Don Budge, you know, all of those guys, I love them. Uh, but they just, it's too different of an era, too different of how the way the tour was structured. These guys all played, you know, nine Masters-ish events a year, year-end finals or Masters Cup as they were called for Pete Sampras, the four slams, all of these different things. It was much more consistent between all of them than it is the further you go back. Although, Again, if there were stretches in the 80s or late 70s that I'm missing, please let me know. But let's start with the fourth guy. Let's look at Pete Sampras because the run he had from 93 to 97 is just staggering. He goes an average of 71 and 13 per year. Now, I'm just going to round up, not do the decimal points, but some of my percentages will be from those decimal points. But you know, 71 and 13 throughout the year. So he's playing 84 matches, winning 71 of them. That's about a win percentage of 84%. That's just ridiculous. 
and it gets even better from there. 7.8 titles, nine, so about, he's winning about eight titles, reaching about nine finals in the 19 events he played per season over that five-year stretch. By the way, 19 events per season, higher than Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic throughout their best five-year stretches. So he was playing more tennis, and he was still finding success. Uh, you know, he's winning 40% of the events he plays. He's essentially making finals in, you know, 50% of them, 48.5 to be specific. Specific, uh, 66 total top 10 wins over that five-year stretch. He's averaging 13.2 per season. That means he's, you know, he's playing 20 events. He's at, he's seeing at least one top 10 player, maybe even two uh, per event. Uh, you know, one uh, per. I should say about one every other event, and he's beating them the majority of the time. So it's just crazy. Sorry, stutter there for that stat. Let's keep rolling. Nine major titles, one major final two semifinals, three quarterfinals, and he played all 20 slams over that five-year stretch. He also played 33 Masters events, which, by the way, as I'll talk through in a second, that's the lowest amount of any of the guys on this list. But he won eight Masters titles during that stretch. He also won year-end titles in 94, 96, 97. And he's the only guy of the four I'm going to talk about, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, uh, to end every season during his prime, you know, 93 to 97, again, ranked as the number one player in the world. He also helped lead the U.S. to the 95 Davis Cup championship. It's exceptional. It's just a cut above what Agassi was doing, what Courier was doing, Becker, Lendl. You can name all of them. This stretch from Sampras is the best five-year stretch of his career. Simply put, he was the best player in the world over these five years, and it's not disputable, and his excellence speaks for themselves. And this was the first, you know, again, the reason I want to start with him is because he set the standard of what excellence looked like. By any other metric, not compared to any other three guys, he is in that if the big three are on their own team, in terms of accomplishments, and they really are at this point. But this Sampras level, and I'm not going to get into the Andy Murray one who just missed the cut, but this Sampras is a cut above everything else. It goes the big three, gap, Sampras, gap, everyone else. This is the standard. So just to talk about Sampras, and again, based on the titles he won and the percentages, he's really competitive with the rest of the big three, but now you start looking at them. And let's go to Rafa first, who, in my opinion, has the third best five-year stretch prime of his career. And again, longevity is part of the strength of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. It's not just that they did it for five years. It's that they've done it for 15 years. And, you know, that's a separate argument. But right now, we're just looking at the best five-year runs uh, in ATP Tour history. And for Nadal, I'm not going to lie, I cheated. Uh, I used 2008 through 2011. I skipped 2012 because he lost the second half of the season two knee tendinitis, and I went to 2013. Well, let's look at Rafa now. Rafa goes 72 and 6 and 11 and 4, so about 73 and 11 during that stretch of time. That's an eight, you know 86.4 win percentage. That's even better than Sampras was. A little worse than Sampras, only 6.6 titles in 17.4 events over this uh, five-year stretch, but he's making 10.2 finals as well. So it, by contrast, Sampras, you know, 48.5% of the events he's playing, he's making the final. Rafa over this stretch, he's all the way up to 58.6%. So literally about six out of every 10 events he played, he made at least the final. 
You look at the top 10 wins. Again, Sampras was at 66 total, 13.2 per season. Rafa, a ridiculous 16.4 per year, 82 total top 10 wins. That's second on this list. And when we get to number one, uh, you're going to be blown away by how many top 10 wins he has. But, you know, 82 total, 16.4 per year. What this tells me, again, the level of competition. Each and every event Rafa played, he saw the best and he beat the best. You know, 16.4 per year in 17.4 events. He's not playing slouch events. He's, you know, he's not going to see them in each and every event he plays. He's not going to play a top 10 player, but for the majority of them at the Masters events, at the Grand Slams, he's playing and usually beating top 10 opponents during this time. He wins nine major titles, which again is, I believe, equal to Sampras over the stretch. Two finals, three semifinals, two quarterfinals, and here's where he gets dinged. A fourth round, a first round, and two DNPs. So he only played 18 of the 20 slams. Still, again, top 10 wins. How many finals he's making, that gives him the edge to for me over Sampras. The other thing that gives him the edge, 15 Masters titles, eight other finals in 42 events. He played 42 Masters. You know, Sampras only played 33. He still, though, managed to have, uh, by comparison, seven more Masters titles. He's also made, you know, five more finals than him. So in 12 more titles, finals combined in only nine more events. He was just better at the Masters than Sampras, and that's because he dominated the clay for so many years. And you know, you look at some of the other things he did. Uh, the, the big gap on his resume, no year-end finals, but he's got the most Davis Cup titles of this group. He won three with Spain in 08, 09, in 2011. He also won the 08 Olympic gold medal. He's the only guy on this list who can say he—I should say singles medal, excuse me. He's the only guy on this list who can say he won an Olympic uh, gold medal in a season. He was also year-end number one in 08, in 2010, in 2013, year-end number two in 09. 9 and 11. And again, 11 and 13 came with a prime fetter, or not a prime fetter, but a post prime tail end of his serious prime fetter. And it obviously ascending, maybe even in his prime Djokovic. You talk about level of competition. Uh, certainly, he played Djokovic numerous times over this five year stretch, but he had success and he obviously dominated the French Open, but won titles elsewhere as well. He was exceptional over this period of time. And again, this is number three because it gets even better from here. And I, I really did consider putting Federer's uh, five-year stretch below. You know, I came in with the idea that I was going to find that Nadal's five-year peak was actually going to be better than Federer's five-year peak. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. But oh my God. Getting to look at Roger Federer's five-year peak was truly a, a pleasure because let's start with the win percentage. He is the only player in men's tennis history to have an over 90% win percentage in ATP matches over five over a five-year stretch. Let me repeat that. Over a five-year stretch, he was winning over 90% of his matches. His average record each season, 76-8. and eight. You know, he's playing 16.8 events, so again, a little bit lower than Sampras, but fairly similar to Rafa. And he's winning three more titles. <coughs> 
excuse me. He's winning three more titles uh, per year on average. He's at 9.2 titles, 11.8 finals per year in the 16.8 events he's playing per season. So again, Rafa was at making the finals in 58.6 of events he played during that five-year stretch. Federer made the finals of 70% of his events, and he won over half of the tournaments he was playing over that five-year stretch. Those two numbers, the best of any guy on this list. And number one gets really close, and with the other things, that's why number one is number one on this list. But you can start there when you talk about just how dominant Federer was. Now, you know, top 10 wins, 76 total. That's less than Nadal. He's averaging 15.2 per year. That speaks to the level of competition with all due respect to Roger Federer. Yes, Nadal was ascending by the end of the Federer prime. And yes, there were guys like Safin and Hewitt and Roddick and, you know, so on and so forth during that time period. But It wasn't the level of the big three, right? Djokovic had to beat Federer. Djokovic had to beat Nadal. Djokovic had to beat Murray. Nadal obviously had to do the same. And Federer didn't quite have that during that sh- this stretch of time. It allowed him, and I mean, maybe his dominance speak to the fact that, you know, I'm not saying Hewitt, and Hewitt Roddick, those guys are bad players, uh, but they didn't get to the level that these other guys did, these Nadal and Djokovic did. And so, you know, he does get a slight ding due to the level of competition, but I mean, he played all 20 slams during this five-year prime. 12 major titles, that's the highest on this list. Four finals, is that means he's made 16 major finals over this five-year span. Uh, you know, that's 80% of the majors he's playing. That means, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, three semifinals on top of it as well. The only blemish, a third-round exit in the 4 French Open. Of course, that's the first year of this prime. So it can be forgiven now. You know, Federer on the lower end in terms of the Masters here only played 36 of a possible 45 events, but he didn't win 13 of of those titles. He made seven other finals as well. Year-end titles in 04, 06, 07. Gets dinged for no Davis Cup finals, and of course, second-round Olympics loss in 04, quarterfinal loss in 08 in singles. But he ended 04 to 07 as the number one player in the world. He was number two in 08. Obviously, that's when Rafa starts his ascension, as I mentioned. Hey, great shot to me. What a rhyme there. But again, he won over 90% of his matches during this stretch. He was averaging nine titles in 17 events per year. He won more than half of the events he played. That's special. That's just exceptional stuff. And it, again, Nadal was ridiculous. So was Sampras. But Federer was that much better. But if you want to make the case for why Novak Djokovic is the number one player in men's history, not number one, maybe, uh, again, most impactful and most accomplished are two separate things. And, you know, the cultural significance, the popularity, all of these different things. There are various different categories and nuances. But getting to the Paul Anacone title of most accomplished, Novak Djokovic from 2011 to 2015 is the best five-year stretch of any male player in the open era in history, period. Again, best stretch in history, period. And here are the numbers behind that. You know, 72 wins, 8 losses. It's about a .898, so round up. No, you round up, it's 90%, 89.8%. That's, 
I, I won't I'll swear that's f-ing nuts I mean yeah Federer's was you know over the 90 mark and you get that and mazel tov to him and by the way hugs man happy Passover to all of my fellow Jews out there uh, it certainly was an interesting Seder for me I was on zoom and there was about 27 of us extended family and all it was a lovely affair but it's like trying to get out of a parking lot at religious services right it's like just let me out just let's all get along let's all get through this because it was it was chaos but anyways back to Djokovic um, no it was great but getting back to Djokovic 72.4 and 8 and point two, so 0.898 average record he is playing 15.8 events per season so about 16 again that's about one less than Federer but 8.2 titles 10.8 finals on average. So he is finaling on average 68.4% of his events over this stretch. I talked about how ridiculous Federer's 70.2 is. 68.4 is not far behind. I talked about Federer winning 54.8% of the events he played. And again, Sampras and uh, Sampras and Nadal were under 50%. Federer to be over 50% is ridiculous. You know, Djokovic is over 50% too. He's winning 51.9% of the events he plays. But here's where Djokovic separates himself from everyone else. I keep talking about top 10 wins as a metric of the level of competition you face. Novak Djokovic, and just to set the scene again, Federer, sorry, 76 top 10 wins. Nadal, 82 top 10 wins. Sampras, 66 top 10 wins. Those are all awesome. Novak Djokovic over this five-year stretch, 119 total top 10 wins. He averaged 23.8 top 10 wins per season for five years in a row. Do you know how good you have to be? That means, you know, you look at the career head-to-heads and the Gasquets, the Songas, the Monfises, the Ferrers, the Burdiches, the Wawrinkas, and, you know, all of those other guys that aren't even, I'm not going to say because it it'll hurt my feelings, but all of those non-big four guys, Djokovic was beating all of them. The only people who could beat him during the stretch were the other two most accomplished players in men's tennis history in Roger Federer and uh, Rafa Nadal. And, you know, you talk about the majors. He's at nine majors titles, which is the same as Sampras and Nadal during their best five-year stretches. But he's the only guy over this five-year prime that didn't lose before the quarterfinal of of a major in any of the 20 majors he played. Again, well, you know, Rafa was really good. Sampras was really good. Federer only had the one slip up that third round in 04. Are you really going to blame him for that? No, probably not. But for Djokovic, nine major titles, six major finals, four semifinals, one quarterfinal in 20 slams. You look even more specifically at those slams. And of course, if you extend it, even two more majors, he wins the first two majors of 2016. So that would get him to 11. But, you know, that's not fair. We didn't do that for everyone. So I'm not going to do that for him now. But, you know, three of those finals, French Open final losses. And, you know, in 2012, guess who we lost to? Nadal. In 2014, guess who we lost to? Nadal. That 2015 loss to Wawrinka, yeah, that one probably hurts a little bit. He left one on the table there. But four semifinals and a quarterfinals as well. You also look at the Masters. He's got the most wins at a master, uh, most master title wins in a five-year stretch of any player in ATP history. 21 Masters titles, six other finals in 41 events. To make the final in 27 of 41 Masters, that's just phenomenal. 
that's exceptional. And of course, he won four straight year-end titles, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. You know, fourth place at the Olympics in singles hurts. No Davis Cup titles hurt. But he was year-end number one in 11, 12, 14, and 15. And, you know, Roger Federer was late 30s, early 30s at that time. But what have we learned about Roger Federer? He's damn good through his 30s. And early 30s is honestly the the end of a prime. That's post-prime, but not, you know, post-prime, but pre-decline, we'll say. He's also year number two in 13. That was just the year of Rafa Nadal. But, you know, even if 13 is the only year he ended year-end number two, you look at his season in 2013, he won Australia, semis French, finals Wimbledon, finals U.S. Open. It's exceptional stuff from Novak Djokovic. And I just think level of competition, this is a recency bias. Of course, I came of age during 2011 to 2015. Djokovic being number one has been the majority of my, I would say, well-reasoned part of life, my my mature part of life, my adolescence, whatever term you want to do, post-puberty. Well, was I post-puberty in 2011? Probably not. Some would argue maturity-wise, I'm still uh, pre-pubescent. But that's a discussion, again, for another time. I mean, just again, he's playing less matches, less events, but he's winning just as frequently. He's, you know, winning all of these Masters events, 41 events over a five-year stretch. That's better than any player but Rafa, who is at 42. But Federer, Samper, still in the 30. They missed Masters events. Djokovic essentially never missed a big tournament during this five-year stretch. The only four Masters he missed, he missed back-to-back Madrid Opens in 2014 and 2015. He missed Monte Carlo in 2011, Shanghai in 2011. His only other miss came in, I believe, let's see, one, two, three, four. Oh, no, only four misses over that stretch of time. I mean, that's phenomenal. He's as his endurance, his stamina. He's just always in the big events during the best five years of his career, and because of that, you can always count on him, you know, to make semifinals or better. Honestly, at all of these big events he's playing, he's just the, the five-year Djokovic prime is the most winningest. You know, winning is the winningest. You know, is that the term again? Whatever. Screw the grammar at this point. It's just. He had the most success of any player, period. That's my argument. That's what I've been talking about. Yes, you, you want to distinguish who's the most accomplished of all time. You want to say Federer with 20 slams. He's a cultural icon, all of these different things. That's most impactful. You want to talk about who accomplished the most during the best of their years? Yeah, it, some of you are going to say, well, Federer's 12 majors. So to your argument, Alex, well, guess what? There's more than majors in the tennis world. I started this off by saying it's the only sport out there that plays every week, January through the end of November. You know, sometimes it bleeds into December even. And, you know, year in, year out, the consistency and the excellence of Novak Djokovic during this five-year stretch was simply put the best in ATP Tour history, certainly at least of the Open era. So my final rankings, I have... Djokovic from 11 to 15, number one. Federer from 04 to 08, number two. Nadal from uh, 08, 9, 10, 11. Skip 12 to 13 at number three. And then Sampras, 93 to 97. Just a tier below them, but at number four. And I would love to be proven wrong. Tell me there's another person who has a four-year stretch that belongs in there. Make the case. If I got those orders incorrect, you think Federer's four-year stretch was better, or five-year stretch, you think there's a better five-year stretch in all of these players' career. Again, make the case. I would love to hear it. Reach out to me at Great Shot Pod. I'm going to tweet out something similar 
along all of these statistics. Just a little game to see if you can guess who accomplished what, who is who, uh, because I think you're all going to enjoy it quite a bit, and I think it'll help stir the pot. And of course, uh, you know that's the path of fun. That's what we want to do right now: take your minds off of the real world, get you thinking about tennis, just to offer you a nice little distraction that we all could use at a time like this. And of course, if you've missed any of our other content, uh, be sure to go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com, where you can find this podcast where we've had such phenomenal guests, uh, of course, over these past couple of weeks. People like Steve Weissman, Mark Lucero, Andy Katz, Carlos Silva, the World Team Tennis CEO, and more. It's been, you know, we've we've tried to have as many interesting conversations as possible over this time period so that you all can hear the various perspectives and we can show off the many incredible minds right now in the tennis world. On the Cracked Interviews podcast note, we just talked to WTA Player Council Rep Christy Ahn. We also talked to Paul Anacone, of course, the former major champion, coach of Federer and Sampras, tennis analyst as well, and two of the brightest minds uh, right there in between Ahn and Anacone in the game. So be sure to go listen to those conversations. Also talk to players like Claire Liu, Dennis Kudla, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Chris Woodruff, who, by the way, plenty intelligent, all the four of those people, no disrespect to them when I call Ahn and Anacone, uh, two of the most intelligent. They've all been phenomenal guests, so please go be on the li- go listen to all of those episodes like rate subscribe review each of these podcasts share them with your friends go check out our youtube channel it's three clicks you'll subscribe you'll never miss any of our content old or new we've got a bunch of fun things in underworks right now again at cracked racket cr classics over served and more so i think you all will really uh enjoy that and you don't want to miss any of it so go subscribe to all of those things now and again the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube it's at cracked rackets you want to slide into my dms go right ahead uh just make sure you know it's at great shot pod for that directly if you message cracked rackets dalton will respond to you and know that it's dalton it's not me um and of course no but sometimes it is me as well but you know if you want to just know that it's me be sure to reach out to at great shot pod but i suppose you've heard enough of me today so i'll end with a shout out as i always do to our super producers max Fligner and daniel westoff for the of an editing job they do day in day out they are two of the best if not the two best in the business and they make me sound a lot better than i am so shout out to them there are a couple of coughing fits that you all don't have to hear thankfully because they are willing to cut those out so quickly shout out of course as well to our sponsor diadem sports who make these daily podcasts possible go to diademsports.com use that promo code cr50 and get 50 percent off all of your tennis needs but for our super producers, Max Flicker and Daniel Westoff, for our sponsors at Diadem Sports, and for all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin, and you know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.